0: Welcome in episode 248 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. This episode is sponsored by Dream Symbols. In this episode, which is our highlight show number two, I pulled some uh, episodes from the, like the first quarter of our show. So this is around the 62, somewhere around there. We're kind of hitting our stride and we talk about, let's see, we go through bass drum technique, we talk about seat height, we talk about dynamics, how we use the book Stick Control... Um, what we feel should be in our gig bag for every gig. And then also I found the origin story of the infamous Like That Count Off. So let's check out the show. Thanks for listening.
1: All right. So I wanted to talk a little bit about developing your bass drum technique. And I think you got a chance to see it yesterday. But on the Mike's Lessons Family Facebook page, which is our private page for our family, there was a guy there and he was working really hard on his bass drum technique. And you could see from the videos, he put in the time on heel-toe and what he was calling the slide technique. And he was very frustrated. I mean, like, if you read that post, he seemed like quite pissed at himself, right? And I felt horrible. And I I immediately jumped in. I'm like, it's time for an intervention. Slow down. It's okay. And then I looked at those videos and both of those techniques, in my opinion, and I was really excited to see what you have to think because you might really not agree with me at all. But I think that both of those techniques, the way he was playing them, were very extreme. I've never played the bass drum pedal that way in my life. I've definitely seen Jojo Mayer do the heel-toe thing. I've seen even my own foot do what I could assume people would call a slide, but it's definitely not a slide. I'm skipping, I'm hitting it once and then I'm moving forward on the pedal and hitting it again. But he was doing it in very extreme ways. And I think if you start with technique and you predetermine this is the technique I'm gonna do. It, sometimes it can be a little harmful because maybe that technique was developed by that other person because of their physiology. Uh, so I've just always thought in my head of trying to teach Shaquille O'Neal drums, I can't teach him with my techniques. He's got a size 24 foot. So we're, his body's gonna have to figure it out. We still have to get the same result, but his body's gonna have to figure it out. So, what do you think about those two techniques and developing your bass drum technique? I think this is the this is indicates to me it's the perfect example
0: of too much information. Yes. You we you as soon as you give something a name and then you're trying to like unlock it it because the slide technique your foot's going to do once your ear hears the rhythms and then you just start trying to play the rhythms. There's there's really no other way to play doubles on a pedal without your foot skipping or sliding or doing something right. like that. Sure. But the moment you try to force your muscles to do that I think it's you're destined to failure. It's similar to, you know, as soon as someone called it the molar technique, right. all of a sudden people were, like, trying to, like, like crack the code of the molar technique when really the molar technique just means just let your arm do what the hell it wants to do naturally. Get out yeah. of the way. And it's a similar well, basic technique.
1: Also, then – you're factually incorrect in the molar technique because it's like, well, that's not it, and it's like, well, what the hell does it matter? Doesn't yeah. the result? Isn't that all that matters? Is the result? I mean, we just talked about Art Blakey for God's sakes. Like, <laughs> yeah. I was telling you before we started recording the podcast. Like, I don't know how that man can play a press roll. He has like the weirdest technique ever. But it's like, didn't we just hear the most beautiful, powerful press roll ever? So, yeah. Yeah, how am exactly. I going to dog out his technique? Yeah, you can't study the Art Blakey crush roll. I mean, <laughs> if you did, you would.
0: Uh, you just have to hear it and try to get that sound and I think right. if you hear I think this is this is a risk of, of drummers who just who don't have a musical application for stuff to right. be leery of like do you need those techniques like are you right. really playing music that demands it because probably not because you probably would already be playing at a level that would be able to execute that technique to a point where you're not like this is so far and what am I doing wrong um Absolutely. So I don't, I don't like teaching techniques and breaking apart like that. I understand that that's a way to market kind of educational materials and stuff, but I don't like the open closed hand technique thing for me. It, I have no use for it. It's too quiet and it's too uncontrolled for me. Yeah. So I'm not even going to. I don't play samba. I don't play music where I need to play sixteenth notes with one hand. I don't play death metal. So I'm not going to practice the open-closed technique. And it's just like the heel-toe bass drum technique. I don't play
1: 16th notes in a row. And for me, that's not powerful enough. I would just use a double pedal if I needed to do that. Well, and not to mention, if you were in a metal band, you wouldn't have to practice the open-closed technique with your hand because as you can't keep up with your band and you're forcing yourself to figure it out, your body figures it out. Yeah, I mean, that's where all these techniques... You have to think, like, okay, well, who who made up the heel-toe technique? Whoever it was, it didn't exist until they made it up. So, clearly, they weren't following anybody's technique. Yeah. They just had to come up with something that made their foot be able to go with one foot, and all of a sudden, they look down and go, oh, wow, that's how I'm doing it. I mean, that's, for me, I mean, I've definitely been known throughout my career as having a fast single foot, and, you know, it's because – my parents couldn't afford a double pedal when I was a kid, so it's like, well, I'm not. I, I need to play Pantera. I, yeah. I don't know what to yeah. tell you. Cowboys from Hell just came out. I got to do this. Um, so, but I've never worked on my bass drum technique at all. My technique that I give my students, and the only technique I teach, is called the desired result technique. Figure out the desired result. Work your ass off, and when you get there, look down, and you'll find out what your foot does. Yeah. But I never knew I skipped up the pedal until other people pointed it out to me. Yeah. Like, hey, exactly. what's your foot doing down there? I was like, I don't know. I've you never even do looked it. down. Yeah, you, you just, just, do just
0: do it. Do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's been the one time I think that I've heard someone do something on the bass drum, like, wow, what the hell are they doing? And then I investigated was Steve Gadd doing the heel toe on the uh, Buddy Rich Memorial concert okay. thing. Okay. He, do, he just does like but when he does it it's a lope and you can feel like an accent unaccented kind of pattern right. so it has a musical application he's just sure. not trying to cram out sixteenth notes and using this really strange technique right. he's trying to make it sound like a tap dancer and he was right. a tap dancer oh so really yes yeah, so that may, that's where he, he just said let me try that tap dance technique on the bass drum and there it is and it wow. it gives you that sort of swinging steady sixteenth note thing but you couldn't do that with a rock band and he doesn't crush the pedal. So I think if, as soon as you go into trying to be real physical with that stuff, I don't know that it works. It's a different uh, it's a different genre.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's even when people say like, oh, man, like, but Jojo Mayer does it. I'm like, I, I know. I've heard him do it. I've stood four feet away from him when he does it, and his bass drum is not hurting my ears at all. <laughs> it's very yeah, pleasant. It's a very light so technique. It's a light technique. The other thing, too, is the underestimation of the time that has to be put in to get this. I would say from... Right, left, kick, kick at 40 BPM when I was younger to where I am now, right, left, kick, kick for me is probably a a 240 BPM as 16th notes around the kit clean thing without a lot of effort. That was probably a three to four year process for me, working on it a little bit every day. Now it's not the only thing I worked on, but I did work on it every single day until I was so frustrated in that practice session that I couldn't do anymore. And then I practiced learning songs or my hands or improvisation. But I worked on it every day. Same thing with a double-stroke roll. A real, yeah. legitimate, non-baby-bouncy, pinky-out double-stroke roll was a two-and-a-half to three-year process for me. Every yeah, day. and you can't—there's You can't, there's no shortcuts
0: for that stuff. Nope. Which I think no. that's what sometimes these people— when you get a DVD that's like, learn this technique, it, you think it's going to be a shortcut. But right. I, I feel like you should just start as slow as possible, just make it sound good, and as you increase the tempo, your body's going to have to— change Adjust. something. Yep. Or else you're yeah. just gonna you're just gonna fail. You're not gonna be able to right. do it. I right. I would rather focus on and this is actually something I wanted to talk about, is the sound that you're going for. Yes. Rather than the technique. So do you want a punchy sound, do you want an open sound? And I I over the weekend I did two gigs where I was completely unamplified. But they were they were moderately loud. So I I was like, all right, now I I need to make this bass drum sound as big as possible. So the whole night it was like don't bury the beater. Don't bury the mm-hmm. beater. And I was using a pretty open sounding drum, so it was it was very apparent when I would bury the beater that I'd like lost kind of all, all the it. power. Yeah. 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 So that was like, all right, I've got to I've gotta hone in on that technique just to get the sound. I'm not trying yeah. to hone in on the technique just to have a technique to talk about. Right. Yeah. And the same thing with the snare drum. I was really focusing on snapping the stick off the head to make it almost sound like it had its own reverb. Mm, Rather yeah, yeah. than you know crushing it because it was a lot of just big backbeats. So it, it starts with a sound. I think
1: it should always start with a sound. Totally. And you you just have to be open to you know sometimes people come and see me at a camp or something. That's really the only time or clinics where people are seeing me play up close. And they go like, Hey, you didn't you didn't bury the beater or you did bury the beater or you played that note with heel down. I'm like, You don't understand. I don't have a technique like i have I'm going for something, and whatever it takes to make that happen that's what happens yeah but i, I don't ha- I don't have rights and wrongs, you know I mean if I'm playing uh like art Blakey, I might actually flex my arms a little bit just to get uh, stiffened up a little bit I'm not yeah. trying to be slinky Bill Stewart, you know um and so whatever makes it happen is what makes it happen so to the student that was going through the woes and to all of you guys out there that go through the woes of like I'm not getting any faster. Definitely, it's just like diet fads. There is, there's no quick fix. Oh my goodness, son of a! Do not disturb. I forgot to turn it on again. (laughs) Shut the front door. Um, Where were we? (laughs) Yeah, there's. uh, We'll just edit that out in the mix. We're gonna sync that to the grid and uh, put a little Stephen Slate uh, samples over the top of you. Um, But uh, yeah, there's no shortcuts, and you 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 have to put in the work and. At some point, you you have plateaus, and I remember my double strokes plateauing on uh, my hands at about 130 BPM, and they were there for like five months, and they'd fluctuate to 132 and back down to 128, and then, like you said... My body decided, hey, you know what? We have these little fast twitchy things called fingers. Let's get these guys involved. <laughs> right. But I never, but no one told me use your fingers. They just jumped in the mix, and all of a sudden, I went from one thirty to one sixty in like a week. Yeah, and I was like, oh, this is great. And then I plateaued at one sixty, and then I pushed through again. And yep. uh, you know, so it's it's just a long haul instrument. You got to stick with it. Try not to get too frustrated, guys. And, and the finger thing that was that might have been the trendy thing in the in the
0: early 90s i remember it was like dude you got to get your finger technique together i'm like what the hell are you talking about finger (laughs) technique what does that mean so then you know everyone's trying to like do those the buddy rich thing i was like just play naturally your fingers are going to have to be involved when you get to a certain tempo yep so i'd never could i even tried it for a couple months like let me let me try to do that one-handed roll thing i'm like that
1: It doesn't have any application for me. I'm not playing like 10-minute drum solos. Like you have to have the application first to create the desire to practice something. And I see that even with the tone of your drum kit and the sounds that are on your drum kit, people always ask, "Why don't you play splash? Why don't you play China?" Because I don't hear one. When I do, I'll put one on my kit. (laughs) And so you know, and, and the the push pull thing. As soon as I hear. Da, 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 in my head with one hand, I'll work on it, but I don't hear that. The, the yeah. longest I hear is da da ding. I have enough technique to pull off da da <laughs> right. ding, da da ding. So, <clears throat> yeah. all right, well, let's get started. So, uh, first thing I wanted to talk about is chair height. It is something, or throne height, um, something that I think actually impacts how you play the instrument quite a bit, but I don't think there's the right way to do it because I think that is based off of who you are. And every time I've sat at one of my buddy's drum sets that was a professional drummer, sure enough, they sit way different than I do, even if they're the same height as me. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if if there is any benefit to sitting tall or sitting low, and then, or is it just however you choose to sit and however it's comfortable for you, your body will figure out how to make it work. Do you have, first of all, do you care about your seat height? I mean,
0: I I do to a degree. I don't okay. like it to be so low that I feel like I'm kneeing myself in the face, and I don't right. like to be so high that I feel like I'm falling forward. But in between there, it it fluctuates a lot depending on the gig, the room, the volume, all that stuff. It's kind. And when you changing.
1: say it fluctuates, do you mean you actually choose to fluctuate it, or yeah. do you, or do okay? I do, and but in the same time, if if I you know have a
0: quick changeover at a club date, and I don't. I mean, I just sit down and play. Generally, right. the throne is going to be in a spot where I'm not I'm not kneeing myself in the face. That's the biggest concern. If it's too low, and I'm, I just can't get my legs to move right. And you're kind of tall, right? What are you, 6'2", six, six, Yeah, six two. Yeah, so it's just it's a little bit taller on average. So I tend to sit a little bit higher. Um, I had a funny experience over the last weekend. Um, I didn't realize that I had the throne extended as high as it could go. Basically, oh boy. So by the end of the second set, the I guess it was just kind of rocking enough it broke the bracket that was holding that holds oh. the spindle on so it, oh it collapsed like I I almost fell off the drums oh and, my gosh that and, is in awesome the middle of the gig and luckily I was able to just thread the throne in a couple turns and it would hold enough but it's broken my throne is broken <laughs> but that's that kind of threw me off because it, it went from being really comfortable to just a little too low just a little too low okay And all of a sudden, I felt like I was eating the floor tom hoops and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So every, I think it's, and I think the genre that was more of like a, a top forty gig. So it's a lot of bass drum, real, real heavy bass drum playing. Okay. Um, If I'm playing more of a jazz or any kind of more subtle music, I tend to favor to be higher. So I'm over the kit, and I feel like I can be more sensitive that way. The bass drum isn't as as strong and, and prominent. Rock and roll, I'm usually a little bit lower, but. I think it's probably the same as, as you. I kind of just like my legs to be parallel or slightly
1: above parallel. There you go. You know, I, <clears throat> I find, by the way, for everybody that's, <clears> oh <throat> my God, for everybody that has to listen to this, I'm so sorry. One thing that's funny is my drum throne height is actually more relative to my drum set than it is to my personal height. So, And I don't do it on purpose, but every time a a student asks, hey, where do you have your throne? How tall is your throne? I always look at my kit and for some reason, my throne, no matter what, is always the top of my throne is at the exact same height as the bottom rim of my snare drum. I have never even looked at that. That's interesting. Every time. So I visually see the drum set exactly the same, no matter how short or tall it is. My eyes to oh. tom ratio my eyes to symbol ratio are always identical now what and happens so if I, it's not you have to change it yeah yeah i can't huh. i i just see the drum set a certain way and i see it from the top down i don't you know when i sit at somebody's uh kit like uh Vic from Vic's drum shop you know mm-hmm. he has that monster drum set yeah so he has that monster drum set that goes up already but he's also sits pretty low i can't sit like that and look like i'm underneath the drum set playing up to it i have to look at it like a producer looking down on the drum set and there's all these options for me as i'm looking down on it Um, interesting but i can't sit too tall because just like you said then i feel like i'm on my tippy toes i'm almost falling forward but i have you know when i went from my 22 10 16 kit which was a bit taller because it had a 22 inch bass drum uh when i went from that to my 20 inch bass drum my 12 inch rack tom uh the distance between my the top of my throne and the bottom of my snare has never changed it's pretty weird that's interesting the other other weird
0: thing i've noticed is even if i start out with my seat super high just over the course of the gigs or the weeks it just works its way back down to parallel <laughs> just spin it, it just, just spins a couple times way way around, around. <laughs> yeah like
1: yeah, i don't yeah.
0: i don't consciously change it but it just right. over time it kind of gets
1: back to that spot where it's supposed to be almost yeah. every time yeah i think it's it, that's one thing when um because so many different people play my drum set at camp all year long, there's other people, I, I let them know, first of all, you can never move my drums, ever. Like, I want you to get used to sitting down and playing a drum set. But you can move the throne as much as you want. That's why we have a hydraulic throne here. I'm not a huge fan of hydraulic thrones unless you're a teacher, and it's for the student kit, and they're always adjusting it. Yeah. It's better than doing the spinning thing, and then it eventually strips. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's something that uh, every time someone sits on my kit, they've already changed my throne, so I have to redo it. And I don't, I don't measure. I don't do anything. It always ends up top of the throne, bottom of the snare. I'm Weird. going to have to see if mine is that way as well. Or just see like, see, like, over the next five gigs, is it always in the same place relationship-wise to your snare drum? Yeah. yeah. You know, actually,
0: I've, I've noticed more recently that um, my snare is probably too low. Because sometimes I feel like I'm punching between my legs. <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. It, so, it, which is just weird. I think I, I think it just again is from growing up, just being a little bit taller than most people, and just having to play drums that are a little bit awkward. Like I've right. also noticed that my hi hat, because of my snare positioning, my hi hat leg ends up bowing out to the side, like in a, just an unnecessary mm. way. Yeah, it's just it's just silly Jeez, little yeah. things that just
1: over the years have become habit. I just noticed actually that. My snare drum is encroaching too close to my bass drum pedal, which is uh, making—I actually bow out my bass drum foot. And I'm like, this Uh. can't be good. Like, I'm kind of leaning my thigh to the side to make—and it's like, this is silly. Just move it over two inches. But then when I do that, because my rack tom is now a part of my bass drum, I actually can't move my rack tom to the left. Then all of a sudden my snare is to the left of my rack tom by three inches and I can't handle it. I cannot handle it. So it's <clears throat> we're so silly as drummers, man. Yeah, we're all quirky. That's why I p- always put the rack tom on a snare basket or something separate. Yeah, I'm actually going to uh, have Gretsch send me just one of their whatever those uh, rims mount systems are for. Mm. You know, uh, just because I want to get it back onto the. The crash cymbal stand, so yep. that I can move it in and out. So, okay. So, last question on this: Do you have a preference as far as throne top? Are you a rock and sock guy? Are you a Carmichael guy? Um, or do you just grab a throne.
0: It doesn't really matter. I mean, the the kind of cheaper budget thin round ones like really beat my butt up, and after a while, like I can't use those. Um, sure, I can use them for like a forty-five minute set, but if it's a three set night, by the end of the night, my tailbone is just. Just yeah. beating me up, so <clears throat> I'd prefer the um, what do they call them? The bicycle seat, the the, the oh yeah motorcycle yep. style. Mm-hmm. I just prefer that. I think it's because that's a little bit higher than normal, and the round seats tend to cut off circulation. Yeah. I use the um, the ahead spinal G, which has a small channel. Not and again that that's strictly because I have chronic tailbone issues. Got it. And that helps, but yeah, I'm not super picky. I don't like the extremely cushy ones because i feel like i'm kind of bouncing or i'm playing on the couch right but anything that's just kind of normal firm yeah f- firm soft you. but not too soft not super oversized you know <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> i'm not that picky
1: i just don't yeah. like sitting on those cheap <clears throat> metal plate ones those are oh, ones that drive me yes yeah. nice. those are rough those are rough yeah. man i feel you all right guys now it's time to talk a little bit about education and in the newest issue of modern drummer what is this the uh November. November issue. Yep. Yeah, with Will Calhoun on the front. Uh, you guys have a short article just called uh, Dealing with the Death Stare, You're Too Loud. So this <laughs> yeah. is when you play way too loud and you get the death stare from a guitar player or a singer guy. Or even like we talked about the other day where you had a... Didn't you have a friend where... Or somebody was making the booth where somebody got fired because their drums were bleeding into the vocal mic? Yeah, that was... um, Gosh, what the heck was it? It was very... Yeah. Yeah, heck? we are talking about the booths and... Oh, it was the, the electronic pad. Yeah, worked. yeah, the uh, sensory percussion pad. Yeah, that's what happened. The drummer got fired because his his snare drum was bleeding into the vocal mic. <laughs> yeah. So, so now you're getting the death stare from the vocalist and from the front of house guy. <laughs> so I definitely went through this a lot. I came off the road with my band where it was a badge of honor to play as loud as possible. All right. I did was try to break cymbals, break heads. You know, we would talk at the end of the night with the other drummers, how many sticks did you break tonight? Oh, I broke seven. <laughs> oh man, I broke ten. And they're like, Yeah, but you're playing those five A's, I'm playing three A's. And it's like, okay, well I'll play your three A's tomorrow. It was a total badge of honor to hit like a monster. I went from that <clears throat> straight into the Sacramento State Latin jazz ensemble. Uh-huh. And so at 26 all of a sudden they're telling me hey uh and i'm thinking i am playing quietly they were like that is unreal how loud you are and we're playing in one of those you know we rehearse in the musical hall hall at the university so it's acoustically yep. perfect which is not perfect at all if you can't control your dynamics yeah drums can not actually control yeah quite annoying yeah so it's more for like singers probably yeah it's like a darn cathedral so <laughs> I'm like, dude, I can't, you can't hit a drum softer than I'm hitting it. And then I would see one of the students that grew up in, that didn't go out on tour after school music programs. And all of a sudden I'm like, uh, that sounds flawless. And you're 19. Great. So I think one thing that a lot of people aren't doing anymore because of great in-ear monitors and great custom earplugs is they're not hearing the drums without headphones or without in-ears or without earplugs. They only hear it with the sound being muffled or at least bringing the volume down. Because if you have in-ear monitors, you bring the sound down by like 40 dB, and then you just bring it back up until you're happy with it. But that's nowhere near as loud as the drums actually are. Yeah, right. So have you ever gotten to a point where you're— I mean, have you always been on top of your dynamics, or do you hear drummers when when you're playing gigs that are just way too loud and they just don't recognize it? It happens um, unfortunately, too frequently. Um, OK.
0: For me, because I came up in orchestras, it was more the badge of honor was, can you play that snare drum so quiet that the conductor has to ask for more of it? That was That was yes. more of the challenge. Like we would literally sit outside the rehearsal room and see who could buzz roll quieter than the other guy. <laughs> like that was kind of our you know, our geeky dynamic battle but uh, so on the flip side of that when I go to play loud rock music I feel like I'm really having to push beyond my comfort level um, but it's also interesting because I, I, I've i said before I host these like open mic jams so and I purposely bring cymbals that are dark and kind of dry and controlled because we're playing in a small bar and I know I know cymbals are the first thing that's going to make people's ears bleed and that is Almost to a T, what separates the guys who sound good from the guys who sound bad is how hard they hit the freaking cymbals. The kick drum, you can smash the kick drum. I mean, I've had guys bend the beater on my bass bass drum pedal, <laughs> and it doesn't matter. The snare drum, you can go a little nuts if you hit rim shots. But cymbals, if you crash the cymbals too freaking hard, everyone in the room, yeah. you can see them grimacing. Yes, and I've had absolutely. people come up to me while you know while I'm sitting in the audience and someone's sitting in. And say, why did you bring those cymbals? I'm like, well, trust me, those are the quietest cymbals I own. First of right. all. <laughs> so, and I own a
1: lot of them. So yeah, it's,
0: yeah. Like, like I ch- I chose those knowing that people were going to come in and, and hammer fist them. So that is for it's for me it's it's less about the overall volume, but the the inner volume of what you're actually playing, and right. knowing what each instrument can do. Um, you know, because the bass, like I said, the
1: bass drum just isn't going to offend anybody unless you're playing double bass and, and going But no, bass. I mean, people like it. It's actually a pleasant feeling having that thing kick you in the chest. So right. people enjoy it generally as long yeah. as it's not insane.
0: And the snare drum, if it's cranked and you're hitting rim shots, that's going to make people wince. But so I think tuning also plays a part. Like in bars, I always detune the snare quite a bit further than than most people would like. But that just makes it less, you know, less abrasive. Right. Uh, that's one thing I get complimented on the most is that I, I don't play that loud. And it's not because I don't play loud. It's because I bring the
1: right gear and I make sure not to hit the things that annoy people too hard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, cymbals, you're right. It, it, they also at some point overcrash where it almost feels like they're distorting in my ear where I'm like, oh, man, yeah. my cymbals don't sound like that. Like, why are you doing that to that? My 19-inch extra dry, extra thin crash—it doesn't work once you hit it above a certain level. It actually stops working. Yeah, um, yeah. it chokes, and 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 it's just annoying, you know. And I'm like, ah. Oh. One thing that I try to tell my students and the people that come to camp is, whatever whatever effort level that you were just playing that groove with, and the fill that was going into the crash, stop muscling up for the crash. Like yeah. treat the crash like the last tom hit that you hit. And then everything will be kind of in sync. But I always see these guys go, "Shot, doom, gotta doom," and then they wind up and nail the crash. And I'm like, yeah. you know "How scary that was! I thought something <laughs> happened upstairs. I don't know. <laughs> there was a car crash outside. What the hell was that?" Yeah,
0: those are lethal and, weapons if they're not played with. I mean, because it's yeah. it's metal. You're hitting metal versus hitting wood and plastic. It's yeah. I mean, it's a it's a really that's a huge.
1: I think that is a major professionalism threshold. Like, can I, I you totally control agree. your symbols? <laughs> you know? And like you said with the with the uh, conductor, and I've I've said this for years to my students. Here's the deal: start off too quiet. It's always a compliment when someone asks for more of you, and it's always an insult when they ask for less of you. Yeah, yeah. That's it true. will. N- you will never feel insulted when somebody says, "Hey, man, can you play a little louder? I like it." Oh, yeah. You'll never feel bad when they say, "Is Is there any way you can shut the front door you're gonna feel a little insulted like and then and then you and then you put your head down for the rest of the night and you mope and you're like well if you don't want to hear me then you just don't want to hear me but this is how i do it and it's like it's horrible so it's like just start lower than you think you need to because it's great when they turn around and go dude that is awesome give me some more kick you're like oh i can always give you more yeah so exactly i
0: always think of like this is this is a jazz mentality but if i can't hear every note and every nuance of what someone else is playing then i'm too loud that's kind of my barometer. Like I need to be able to hear the strings of the guitar when he rubs his fingers up and down like that. That's kind of my threshold. And then if it needs to go a little bit above that at times, fine. But in general, I mean, it makes it more fun because you can actually hear everybody. If you're just playing on autopilot and just blaring through the songs and not paying attention, there's not going to be any pocket. Um, And a little bit of an anecdote, I'm not going to name any bands or anything, but I saw a band recently who everyone in the band was amazing players They were clearly playing to tracks. There was, um, and this was kind of like a new metal band. I don't know what you would call that genre, post-emo kind of progressive metal thing. They were clearly playing the tracks with some backing vocals and loops and stuff. But what made it obvious to me that they were playing the tracks was that they were not listening to each other at all. They were just relying on that click to keep them together. So the drummer had no command of the time. His dynamics didn't reflect any kind of emotion So sometimes his fills would be like really soft going into a chorus or real busy, lots of linear stuff that went into like major song shifts. That if there was no click track, there's no way on earth that they would have come out (laughs) together.
1: Right. So it it
0: was like a, it felt like it was just four guys playing songs rather than a band. In their bedrooms separately. Yeah. And so I think that's, and dynamics has a bit to do with that too because he didn't have to. He didn't have to control the dynamics because something was controlling the, the song right. for him. Um, so I'm mean, seeing that trend more and more, and it's kind of frustrating because it doesn't— it it. I mean, yeah, they sound more professional because they've got tracks and everything, but it doesn't sound like a band. It doesn't sound cohesive. And, right. and I blame the drummer mostly because he's not commanding the dynamics. And he's not commanding the time, and he's then throwing in stuff that really shouldn't be there. It's not like a Vinny right. thing where you know he's he's on the ball. This is like, well, the click's there. Let me try some crazy
1: stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. we're going to always be okay. I'll fudge it at the end because I'll <laughs> yeah. get out on the one. There's a there's a higher-pitched beep coming after three right. of the other ones. And it doesn't make yeah. for a
0: good, like, I didn't feel like bobbing my head or anything. It was just kind of right. like, yeah, oh, cool. They sound good.
1: You yeah. Know? But it didn't Yeah, there's me. nothing there. Well, that's the thing is I don't think enough drummers and musicians in general associate, they associate dynamics with like, Kind of like what this article says, like, you're too loud, you're too quiet. They're, they're not associating dynamics with the emotional connection. Right? Um, I can actually scare you with a loud rim shot. Like, yep. really change your heart rate with a loud rim shot if I had a nice, quiet press roll going on for 35 seconds, and you were leaning forward, and then I just nailed a rim shot. So. Yep. Uh, Using that as a way to get the listeners more engaged on an emotional level, not just an intellectual level, I think is extremely important. And that comes down to even tracking drums. That comes down to playing a drum solo. I mean, that's probably my biggest thing that I am actually able to keep track of now in my head that has evolved over the last three or four years of doing solos at clinics and festivals is I actually know how long it's been that I've been at a certain dynamic range. And so it's like, okay, mm. we've been up here for a while. Let's give them a break. Yeah, and, interesting. and let's bring that down. Uh, and so the two things that I'm always aware of right now is overall dynamics or overall volume level and then overall density of the notes. So I know, like, all right, I've been playing pretty busy. Mm-hmm. Let's back it off, give them some core notes on the ride, re, you know, cleanse their palate, and build back up to something else. Yeah. So, Which is also but that's dynamics.
0: T- I mean, that's, in a way, like right? we talked Well, now that we, yeah, <laughs> now
1: that we learned what dynamics are, after yeah. a combined 65 <laughs> years of drumming. And I think the other, the other point
0: that is, is worth emphasizing is if the dynamic is inconsistent that also just sabotages the emotion. Mm-hmm. Like, you, if yeah. you're playing strong rim
1: shots and then every third one is, is soft, I Man. mean, the groove's gone. And Isn't that, like, the biggest compliment that we hear of the drummers we love? Josh Freese, Aaron Sterling, Matt Chamberlain, like, ah, it's so consistent. I never have to do anything with a snare. Every snare is exactly the same. Exactly. You know? I mean, you could look at them on the computer and see that the spikes are almost exact same height every single time,
0: and that yep. just makes it sound better. So Absolutely. you can be playing softly, you can play it loud. So that's that's also a dynamic thing that I think separates professionals from
1: from good drummers. Yeah. Is And I, th- I think even non-musicians, I think human beings can detect inconsistency, whether it be in dynamics or in yeah. time. It's they don't like, know why, it just doesn't feel right. Exactly, exactly. They don't know why, but they can just feel like, yeah, I can't really, I can't commit to this because something keeps changing, even if it's subtle. So I, I think that's a... A huge uh, thing. And, and we need to talk about... Uh, I had a great long, long talk yesterday with the uh, A&R and the head of Audio Technica about this exact thing, uh, mm-hmm. that I, I do want to move to a two-microphone setup, and I wanted to make sure that I had the best mics possible for that. And I said, I think the next step in my journey is that my, my dynamics are under my control, not my mixing board's control. Yep. And I can only do that with a two-mic setup, where if I want the toms to be louder, I'm going to have to play them louder. And yeah. if the cymbals are too loud, the cymbals aren't too loud. I'm playing them too loud. Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk to you probably next week or so once I get it. They're sending me out a new microphone that just came out. It's got like the largest diaphragm uh, on any mic they've ever made. And cool. it's made for picking up a full piano, a full drum set. Nice. Um, so And it's not cheap, but my thought is, okay, but if you only had to buy one mic instead of... Seven mics, then it's going to be around the same. So I'll let you know about that later. Later. So yeah. So
0: we didn't. I mean, talking about actually specifically practicing dynamics. Um, one thing that popped into the mind because I, I did a workshop we talked about it before a recording workshop at Peabody, mm-hmm. and that was one of the things they were asking me like, you know, what do you do to to make sure that the drummer in the studio feels comfortable and they can, you know, deal with the dynamics of the song. And I say, I told them, make sure that in the headphones the overheads are the loudest mics because they're, that way you're going to hear the cymbals. You're not going to get that muffled, uh, you know, muted cymbal sound and they just start yep. overplaying. So for, for drummers, it's the same thing. Put up one mic if you have it and just listen to that mic and then adjust your dynamics. That I mean, every room is going to have a different dynamic, every song, every cymbal. So you have to learn, like, well, what does this, this song require from from the, the cymbal dynamics versus the drum dynamics? And yeah. just having one mic up there and make sure the level is pretty, you know, dominant so you can hear it, you're going to learn, all right, every time I hit that crash, it's just jolting me in the eyeball. Yeah. So then you've got to play that crash probably softer than you've ever imagined having to play it to get the sound that you want. So that's that's one way I practice it and like I said it's always different every microphone's different every drum is different every cymbal is different every song is different (laughs) every style is different (laughs) that's what the the first run through of a track for me usually is for right like how is my dynamics fitting you know what do I need to do to
1: to get this big thin crash to speak better or whatever great piece of advice man I mean that's just I remember when we did the two mic setup you texted me you know right away saying like man I need to work on my dynamics yeah 'Cause I forgot what it's like to hear myself where you don't get to bring the rectom channel down. Right. right. It's like however hard you hit it is how hard it's gonna be. Floor you know? Tom is never loud enough. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And uh yeah, and then the crash nearest that microphone is insane and you have yeah. to really learn how to control things. So I, I think that's awesome, man. Once again, this episode is sponsored by Dream Symbols. First of all, did I, I think I've told did I tell you the story of my first jazz gig after touring where the guy kept saying the words like that after counting me in. No, so so okay. So I get done touring, and I've been on the road for six years playing nothing but rock shows, and I want to start gigging. I'm in my um, I'm in a new town, so I take this jazz gig, and and it's all standards. Like it's old guys that yeah. I, I think they were. I mean, not old, but they were in their late 60s. So these guys. It was simple, simple stuff. So I felt comfortable taking the gig get there the first thing they do is hand me a double xl hawaiian shirt and i was like oh yeah, boy <laughs> here we go here we go so i was like all right it's whatever california jazz yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i was in san Luis obispo that was the town i moved to after touring so i'm like oh my god here we go um and i've got 22 kick 10 inch rack 16 inch floor and pretty much peisty roots is what i'm dealing with yeah of course uh because i just came off the road so anyways um so we start the first tune, and it's just myself, a sax player, and a keyboard player, and that's it. So the keys guy is just playing piano preset, and they're both they both got the uh, the whiskey glass on their either their music stand or the or the piano itself, the keyboard. Nice. So I'm like, oh, this is gonna be a rough one. So, anyways, guy counts me in. He goes one, two, oh one, two, three, four, like that, and then he starts playing after the words like that. What? Yeah, so we were in like five and a half, four. So I came in right after four, and he turned around and gave me the worst look. And he was and and, because I didn't know these guys, and I was like, "Well, that was weird." Second song, one, two, oh, two, three, four, like that, and then that's the downbeat. (laughs) That can't be real. I swear to God, I'm looking over at the at the piano player guy, and I'm like, "Are you hearing this?" And he's like, just hammered, looking straight down. And I was like, "What the hell?" And then when we had intermission, the guy came up to me. And he's like, "What's going on with your time, man?" And I'm like, "Are we talking about in the song? Because there maybe there's some issues. I'm not the best, but are you talking about when you count me in in five and a half four by saying the words like that? After that makes I'm like, "Do you understand that if you want to say like that, you need to say it earlier in the measure? You have to say one, two, a one, two, like that." Uh, But it was one, two, uh, two, three, four, like that. And he always said it exactly. (laughs) Dude, it was the worst. Uh, I wish I could meet this guy. Uh, And then he kept looking at me and I'm like, I'm looking around and we're playing, you know, a restaurant. So I'm like, does anyone else? Is there a doctor in the house? Does anyone hear what's going on here? It's not my fault. I keep coming in early. Anyways, it's clearly scarred me. I was 26 years old when that happened. That's 14 years ago. I just wanted to talk about the book Stick Control. And in my mind, and I don't know if everyone or every educator feels this way, but books like Stick Control and Syncopation are best served with a teacher because on their own, they can be a little bit boring. And once you have a teacher that tells you, now do this. Now do this. That's when the light shines through, and these books become genius, in my opinion. Um, I mean, when you think about syncopation, it's literally it's like forty five pages of syncopated rhythms. Yeah, um, you don't you don't really need it, but but then once a teacher tells you what to do with it, that book. Is, there's a reason why I still have that book thirty years later, and I'm still getting use out of it because yeah. every time I come up with a new ostinato, I'm like, all right, let me go grab summary one from syncopation and see if I can do that with my left hand or whatever. Yeah. So so I know we've actually talked about uh, syncopation and what we like to do with that book. So I wanted to talk about stick control. And I hate to say this, but I don't know who the author of stick control is. George right Longstone. Okay. Um, so if you guys don't have it, it's just a book of sticking patterns. And if you don't know what sticking is, sticking is the ordering of rights and lefts in an order generally other than single strokes. So we have single strokes, and then from that moment on, as soon as you start changing the order of rights and lefts, then you have your sticking patterns, and that's where our paradiddles come in. All of our rudiments that don't have flams or uh, drags pretty much are sticking rudiments, and we're changing the order of rights and lefts. Now, if you have a single surface, it's not that big of a deal uh, if you listen to somebody play singles, doubles, paradiddles, diddles with no accents on a single surface, you can't really hear it. So if you really want to hear why sticking is so important, just put your hands on two different sound surfaces. And then singles, paradiddles, double strokes, they don't even sound relative to each other. Um, all played at the same rate of speed. So it, it takes multiple surfaces to really get the point of this stuff. So Stick Control is an entire book of that kind of stuff. So I wanted to talk to you, Mike, about what do you do with Stick Control other than, let's say somebody can play the first couple pages. Yeah, What's what's something you do with it to make it unique? Stick Control came to me after I'd already been playing about nine years. Okay. So I'd already
0: spent so much time on rudiments and reading and, and all the basic foundations. So... The, the day I got introduced to stick control was from my new drum set teacher, and it was immediately interpretation of stick control. It was never like practice stick control because I'd already done all that that homework prior. So yeah. from day one, it was like this is a book to use to fuel a bunch of creative ideas. Um, right. He would have me mostly in a jazz style. So one of my favorite okay. applications is to read the rhythms um, as triplets, So the sticking stays the same, but you read it as triplets, and then you replace you instead of playing the R's with the right hand, you play the Rs with the bass drum.
1: Oh wow. Okay. So it
0: becomes and then you play the swing pattern with the right hand.
1: Oh, okay. Okay, so you're playing swing with the right hand. Yep. And then two and four with the left foot. Yep. And then, and then the rights in what are the rights in the book? That is your bass that's drum. That's the bass drum, and the left the are, are the left
0: on the snare. Yep.
1: And and are you playing straight triplets? Or are you just swinging the rhythm as as swung eighth Like da 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 da. No, duh, duh, straight duh. triplets. So, so it's ba, it's like, da 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 da. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in those first pages, when there's a ton of lefts, that can be tough. Yep. Or, uh, or yeah. is it in the first pages, or was it later? I, I don't remember, but yeah. I know that on some of them it's like right and then six lefts. Yeah, um, exactly. You
0: know. well, I mean, we kind of focus on the first thirteen or so exercises when you get up okay. to the four in a row, because after after that it just gets in the compounds of singles right. for four eighth notes and then doubles right. for four. Which just you can do that as well, but we just focused on those as a as an independence exercise. I think it was one to thirteen, whatever goes up to yeah. four rights and four lefts.
1: That's really cool. So what play a great those idea. As
0: triplets, um, great independence exercise, and then you could instead of using the right foot you can use the left foot so you're now you're doing your left foot independence against the there oh, wow. uh, that was one interpretation mm. another one that i f- thought was really fun was the the all the r's on the page are your feet but the feet okay. alternate so you start with the right the, on the first r the second r you play the hi hat ah. but the left hand still is still in swing still triplets still in swing okay. and the left hand is still playing all the l's Okay, so let me ask
1: you this because my drummer brain – I'm not in teacher mode right now. I'm in student mode because I've never done this with that. Do you play this in three-bar phrases though, so it eventually resolves on the one? Because I'm assuming uh, – I can't remember. Is it written in one bar or is it written in four bars per line?
0: I think it's two bars per
1: line. Two bars. Yeah. So Because it would take three bars of eighth notes to, to create 24 notes, which would give you um, – which would give you two bars of triplets um no we,
0: we just played as four bar phrases so just keep repeating the sticking until you get to the end of the bars and okay and okay.
1: switch yeah and then I got cool man that's that's very I, like I said my brain would have to I'd be like, where does it land where do I where do I get to hit the big round crash symbol? well that was kind of the point of it was uh um, it, it became this, like, seamless flow
0: of right. figures that you could kind of weave in and out of, and you don't have to resolve. You don't have to stop. You could change. You, you could just start talk. on beat two. You can start on beat three. Yeah. It it, it really was—it kind of just gave me the, the independence mentally and physically to when I was actually playing jazz. I could throw in little triplet things. It didn't have to be, like, beat one to beat one. It could just be— right half of a right. measure or just one beat. Yeah, I mean... But it was really I was, a great independence. That was the whole thing. It was like my foot and hand were now able to just
1: flow without thinking about what I'm doing. I think that's what independence is supposed to be. I, I, I talked to... When you guys had me on the cover, you let me interview... My favorite drummer is about independence. Right. I don't know if you remember that, but yeah. I got to send them questions. And Will Kennedy's answer was pretty much that. He was like, Well, independence is so that I can play whatever the hell I want. It's not so I can tell somebody that I can do yeah. pair deals with my hands while doing double pair with my feet. If it's it so that in like the crack, moment. Cares, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's so that in the moment. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's so in the, in the moment, like, you can do what you want to do. And that's that's. I think that's what independence is, is that, hey, this thing just happened musically just now, and I'm going to respond to it. I don't want to think about, is it two rights? Is it two lefts? Is it a kick? Yeah. How do I get out on one? It's just like, I mean, I, I, I talked to, not to bring him up again, but I talked to Carter the other day. We finally, so we've spent our, I guess, the last four months or so talking nothing but watches and watch straps. And, <laughs> and at some point, we realized... <laughs> do you know that we've never talked about drumming? And so we started talking about drumming, and he was talking about my flow, and I said, oh, I don't, I don't have any flow. That's all, I, I know exactly what I'm doing. It's all um, worked out. It's all memorized. And he's like, really? He's like, I, I couldn't do that. Like, My problem is that I play, and then somebody asks me what did I do, and he's like, I don't know what I just did. It just yeah. happened in the moment. And that's definitely somewhere that I'm trying to get closer to. But I think that that's, that's a beautiful freedom, is that, it's kind of like saying, what did you just say 20 seconds ago? It's like, I don't know, I was just speaking. Well, yeah. shouldn't that be how music is? Like, I don't know, yeah. just talking, you know? And I think that that exercise is fantastic.
0: Yeah, that's why I tend to practice things that aren't specific. They're kind of global, like yes. like this type of thing. The concept is continuous triplets that go between your bass drum and snare drum. And you should be yeah. able to change that in any way you want without thinking, now I'm playing the paradiddle, now I'm playing the inverted right. paradiddle. I'm just, I'm just right. playing a phrase and using yeah. a certain application of a sticking. But I don't – I never think of it as here's exercise
1: four. I just kind of go down
0: the list right.
1: and then – Yeah, well, I think what happens is you have to have a place to start because you can't have the phrases. You can't speak until you have some basic vocabulary. So that's what those first 13 exercises are for. It's right. like let me get you just some basic words. But th- I think the problem is – and I'm dealing with this in my courses, which is – or dealing with this in my courses, which is, okay, I just gave you the vocabulary, but you don't understand. That's not, that's the whole reason I gave you the vocabulary was so you could go speak. If you don't now spend an hour a day practicing, actually trying to have a conversation between your left hand and your right foot. Well then, then you're literally going to sound like somebody that's just learning Spanish. You're going to be able to say, "Where is the bathroom?" My name is Michael. Yeah. But that way you can't speak. Here you can is just the go, paradiddle. Here is yeah. the blush. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and that and that's all you'll be able to do. So I think that that stuff is really important. So, well, I know for one of the things that I, you and I have talked about before, and I have done this with stick control, is replacing each right and left with a grouping of notes so uh-huh. that right equals and left equals. And I think when I talked to you about it, you said it might be a Joe Morello thing. It might be an Alan Dawson thing. Yeah, I don't know I'm if we were ever... sure. Well, that was one of
0: the things that, that my teacher shared with me as well. And he was a Morello student. So I can only assume okay. that that, that spawned from him. Like
1: play every right as a paradiddle and every left right. is something else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, so yeah, so I used it in triplet form as well, but every right was right left left with an accent over the right and every left was right right left with an accent over the left so if you did Uh, right and left you make a six stroke roll so the way that i have my students do it in the beginning is they have to say right out loud while playing the three notes Mm. right 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 the hard thing is they have to say left for the other one which is right right left but they're saying the word left while playing their right hand left 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 Mm -hmm. left so that takes a little bit of time so we'll start with something like four of each right 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 left 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 right right then two of each right right left left right right left left right and then we get into even singles which becomes a six rope roll right left right left right left and then we get to the good stuff. So a paradiddle becomes right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left, right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left. Bang, ding, da, ding, ding, ding. That's great. You know, paradiddle, diddle, right, left, right, right, left, left, right, left, right, right, left, left. Da, ding, ding. So, so that's what I've done with my students. With that is right equals left equals, and then I write out a bunch of right equals what. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, the Morello thing. yeah. And so but for for people that really have a hard time creating any kind of improvised flow in the world of triplets, this is literally my uh, concoction for them of like, okay, I, I can fix that for you and give you that vocabulary just out of these two chunks of notes. And then the, uh, as soon as they get that down, then we bring in the bass drum. So right equals right left kick. And mm-hmm. left equals kick, right, left. So I have a
0: question and, about that yeah. whole process. Because my, my uh, kind of completest perfectionist brain, when when I'm given those kind of assignments, I feel like I can never stop the practicing of it. Like, right. it's, it's endless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when does it actually... That, w- that was a huge problem for me, was taking the stuff that I was obsessing over in the practice room and then having it actually become a musical statement. Yeah. Because you can and, go forever. And, and I've seen that happen with... There's some guys like some of that stuff gets so advanced like you're you're superimposing hybrid rudiments over top of the rights and the lefts. It becomes like, well, have I lost the original intention, or could I just (laughs) invented exercises that didn't need stick control to do this? Um,
1: It's like a huge rabbit hole. I think that's why I haven't gone down the and then you can do this and then you can do it like I literally left it at right, left, left, and right, right, left, and then right left kick and kick right left. And then when my students are here at either for a private lesson or a camp, they'll say, Well couldn't you like you said, couldn't you do a paradiddle for the right and then right left kick kick for the left? And it's like, yeah, but then we're it's never gonna end. I it have is, to end this at some point. And that becomes um,
0: more of a mental game.
1: Exactly, and so that for me, so what I just told you to do with stick control for me, and even what you did with it, that would fall into the first part of my practice. That's non-creative; it is set in stone. If you do exercises uh, one through thirteen the way that you talked about or the way that I talked about, there's nothing to discuss. You either do it right or you do it wrong. Yeah. The next ten minutes or the next stage of my practice is when I try to speak with whatever vocal with with whatever freedom that exercise gave me. Then I try to speak and. Everyone that has ever tried to do that will know you actually feel like you didn't learn anything. Yeah. You are paralyzed. You're like, but I can't do it. And it's like, that's because this part is hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy for me to come out and play a PDF. Like recitals, they never scared me. I had sheet music. Just do what's there. Yeah, Solo? Wow oh, God. You want me just to make stuff up? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Sure you don't have a PDF? So, so yeah. So that's the next <laughs> stage of the practice uh, is, Okay. I did these things. Now can I turn these things into a sound? There's no more right, left, right, right. None of that stuff. It's... And I'm just singing. And once I can do that, then, it, then that, voc- that vocabulary has validity. It actually makes sense, and I'm using it. Um, and so, yeah. So it's... Uh, like you said, it's it's tough. I think the hardest part is how easy it is to practice something that's set in stone. It's on paper. It's either right or wrong because you can either do it or you can't. And so, like yeah. you said, it's a mental puzzle. All I gotta do is solve this puzzle, and then I win. Yeah. When you have to speak, there's no one there to tell you whether you did it right or wrong. And and the
0: kind of the catch is it takes so long to get just the physical and conceptual side down that right for for a lot of. A lot of people, especially students I've worked with, it's like that's all the time they have is, is to just work on that one one pattern. Yeah. And,
1: and they then, still might not even have enough time to get that down.
0: Yeah. And right. I'm thinking, like, well, when do we finally say, okay, be creative with it? I mean, that's, like, the most daunting task. Like, take this really well, complex mental challenge and now remove that and just – Try to be Speak. emotional while you're playing the drum.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it, you you know, you've been a part of the Mike Selzen's family Facebook page forever. I know you've seen like people only complain about stage two. They're like, I don't know how to be creative with this. And <laughs> yeah. It's like I know it sucks, man. I'm with you. Like, wh- why do you think I, I sit on a drum set for eight hours a day and get nothing done? It's because I'm, I'm paralyzed by how hard it is to be creative. That why do you think I wonder? at the Glenn coaches of the world that just sit down and they pull springs out of a snare drum. And I'm like, oh my God. Do you know like that I would actually have to practice that and I'd have to write out exercises for pulling, pulling, you know, rubbing my fingernails on the yeah, side yeah, of my that's, drum so a live lesson idea for you. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Spring okay. technique. It's like I, I, my brain just doesn't work that way. It's all, everything I've ever learned was so I could teach it to someone else. So, so anyway, so guys, we're with you. As far as being creative with this stuff, when you learn something like stick control or syncopation or any book that is set in stone, just know that let, – let's even say that you're learning a, a groove out of future sounds. Do you want me to actually be able to watch you play and go, oh, cool, groove study number one out of future <laughs> yeah. sounds? Or do you want me to say what I should say, which is like, oh, cool, were you into David Garibaldi back in the day? Like, Yeah. It should be influenced by. It shouldn't. You don't just stop once you get it down. To me, that's the first step. That's non-creative. It's like I didn't take any creativity to learn David Garibaldi's groove, turning it into something that I could be proud of and that I could take some ownership of. That took. That was the next twenty hours. Yeah, so.
0: I think it's something we've we talked about before. Is you have to get rid of your self consciousness and your fear of failing when you're getting into the experimental stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's. You know you're going to sound like crap the first time you try to be creative with this stuff. So I think you have to just let go of that and say, "I'm going to sound like crap." It's going to take yeah. a long time. Think of how many
1: how many years it takes a child to be able to say a sentence. It's not just hilariously awkward. Exactly. And what like happens? Years. Your parents laugh at you. Okay. Uh, you know. I mean, Victor Wooten talks about this. Like your parents laugh at you, but you're speaking with pros from day one, so right. they they coach you along <clears> the way and. Yeah. and you know, but the the difference is that as children we forget the embarrassment so fast. As adults we hold on to it like it's just life crushing. Yeah, and right. It's like, dude, you're gonna be fine. I mean, I like I always tell people when they're here. I'm like, what do you think's gonna happen if you completely train wreck this exercise? Do you think you're gonna die? Do you think <laughs> I'm gonna cast you off the island? You are the weakest link. <laughs> like nothing's gonna happen. You just go sit down. <laughs> You're fine. Like, you just did what I did a million times. I've been through this so many times. I, I'm on this journey with you. It's like cool. It'll be better next time. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Keep keep at it. Let's talk about something important. <laughs> Not that that wasn't, but gigging. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this, I wanted to talk about your gigging toolbox. And we've mentioned it in the past a little bit, yeah. but I want to narrow it down to must-haves. And I'm talking about physical things that you have to bring to the gig besides your kit, your symbols. And the reason why is because, as you know, I don't really gig out a lot. And when I do, it's not gigging. I'm flying somewhere. Everything's already there for me. There's a whole crew to help set up. Well, last night I took my own kit to San Francisco for this event. I took my own symbols, my own hardware, and then once the car was packed with kit, symbols, and hardware, that's when I started to panic because I haven't gone out on my own in a while, and I was like, "That can't be it." Yeah. What'd you what f- am I forgetting? Yeah, what am I going to freak out about in two hours when I'm setting up? <laughs> yeah. So then I was like, "Oh, they might have hardwood floors. Let me go. Let me go back upstairs and grab a drum rug." Yeah. And then I get down and I think, "Yeah, but this drum rug isn't all that tacky." So. The whole thing's going to scoot. Let me go back up and get a roll of gaff tape. <laughs> and I swear, I swear, bro, I was about 45 minutes into the drive when I realized, I don't think I have a drum key. Yeah, that's the and one. And I'm like, huh. That's <laughs> impro- well, I hope my drums are tuned the way I like them. <laughs> so it's like, whoa. One, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so what are a few of your must-haves? on the gig that you take with you. Yeah. Uh, you know, I want to say
0: that we had this question, exact question from Garrett. So I want to make sure that we give him a shout out. He said, what do you, cons- okay. what do you consider the must-haves for a gig bag, studio, or live spare parts, ability to make repairs, sound treatment, etc." Mm. So don't want to make him think we forgot to mention him. So Garrett, thank you for the question. It's related exactly to this topic. Um, I have, I kind of, because I do... I gig with, like, so many different artists every week that if I tried to just, like, grab everything individually for each gig, I would I would always leave something behind. Sure. So I have, like, three things. I have a, three symbol bags with very particular sets of symbols for different types of gigs. So if I'm doing the local bar thing where I know it needs to be a little bit dynamically more under control. I have a set of thin, dry symbols that just are in there with a couple pairs of sticks. I always have just loose sticks in the bag in case I forget my stick bag. Um, I always have a roll of tape. I always mm. have some type of moon gel or buzzkill or something, a packet of that. Some dampening. Some kind of dampening. Okay. I always have a pen uh, for making notes on set lists and stuff. Or a marker.
1: Man. Bro. If... I- <sighs> You have no idea. I told myself the whole drive down, as soon as you get there, it's a startup building. It's a building that houses small startups. There must be a Sharpie somewhere. And all I wanted to do was write down the points of my speech on my snare drum. Just words that would trigger the next thing. Yeah. And the thing that I was the most upset about about the event yesterday was there was two times that I actually had to turn on my phone to open my notes to remember the next Ah, uh, Bummer. And I did it as casual as possible, but there's no way of getting around it. Yeah. And that's that's the stuff that eats me alive. And all of that is because I didn't bring a Sharpie. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, by, and and as soon as I loaded in, you know, the, the chaos of load in just takes over everything and you forget everything that was on your mind everything you were gonna do you start loading in you're shaking hands you're talking to people they're like oh you gotta meet this guy and you gotta meet this person and here's our you know soda machine and you know and and all of a sudden they're like okay you ready to go and I'm like yeah and then I'm like oh my gosh I have like 45 minutes of stuff to talk about and I have no talking points because I didn't write it down on my snare head. So I think a, a Sharpie would have been a, a game changer last night. Yeah,
0: that. Or, I mean, I also print out set lists if I know them ahead of time. Even though I might sure. have them on my iPad or on my phone or whatever, I always print them out just so I have that analog. You never know when
1: technology is going to fail you. Yeah, the, by the way, the talking points are sitting in Amber's office. Uh, I printed them yesterday before I left <laughs> and I didn't get them out <laughs> of the printer. So. I, I took things to the whole next level yesterday. Really crushed it. <laughs> so, I mean, did you feel like you were naked not having your notes? A little bit. Luckily, it's when you're giving a speech like that that's really based off of your experiences and your history in creating a, a business almost by accident. I mean, there, there was no plan going in of like, well, this is how we do business. So, everything was really my experiences. So I felt a little naked, but luckily it's easy to talk about your own past and your own history. It was just more or less my fear of getting in the car, opening the notes, and being like, God, that was such a key point. Like one thing that I could not, I I remember it was like, okay, this is so important, I have to talk about this. And I felt that it was missing in the speech because I knew there was something missing, and I opened my notes, and then there was this thing that just said, social media, credit, and debt, and that was like, A 20 minute chunk of my speech. I mean, it was a huge portion of my speech is about what I consider to be social media credit and debt. And that's literally how I base everything I put out on social media. And I think it's an original thought. And I don't think a lot of people understand how important it is. So I was really happy I had the notes, but I just wish it would have been written on my snare drum because they couldn't see my drum set. And I could have just been like now and then casually made my segue. instead I was like, hold on real quick while I thumbprint my phone (laughs) to open up the notes page. Like, ah, good God. Amateur. (laughs) Totally. Totally. And that's the thing. It's like, I'm actually, (laughs) I do this. I I mean, the drumming is God. The drumming was a train wreck, buddy. We, we need to talk about that. Um, there's a huge lesson i learned last night so we definitely need to talk about that but anyways um yeah so that's i, I wish i would have had a sharpie all right well where did i leave off so i had the ink pen <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> so you have your pen uh we both
0: agree you have to have a drum key oh yeah drum key or some kind of multi-tool i like the uh, cruise tools multi-tool which is a it's like a like an Allen wrench but it has an Allen wrench it has a drum key it has a screwdriver I think it has scissors it's almost like a Swiss army knife okay so that's kind of my you know if if something breaks I can fix it or some kind of a, a wrench like the Gibraltar wing key like I said I've mm-hmm. got several cymbal bags each one of these has like a different variation of this kind of tool in it um, that I've I've gotten over the years so I have like some kind of a wrench in case the hi-hat stand just strips and I either really crank it down or whatever um, sure a spare hyatt clutch i usually have that especially for the the stuff i take around manhattan because none of the house kits have clutches i have a bag of felts oh. and washers because none of the house kits have felt washers it's just straight middle metal, metal yep. cymbal stands um what else do i carry to every gig uh metrodome dr beat or some other thing i have a Korg beat lab which is great so those are always in my my bags um Stick bag, of course.
1: Um, what else do I always carry? Uh, Let me ask you this. Where are all these tools housed? Do you put them in the hi hat pouch of a stick or of a symbol bag, or where do they all sit? Yeah, pretty much in that zipper spot in the symbol bag, or, or it's velcro okay. or whatever.
0: Or for, for the setup that I need that has a little bit more intricate stuff, or I need to take like a, an X hat because it's, and I have to take an SBDS pad and all that. That is one of those bigger. Uh, protection racket, rolling cases, which I think we talked about a few months back. So in that, I can hold everything. I can hold sticks, cymbals, hardware, bass drum pedal. Uh, I always take my own pedal. But normally Mm. in my bass drum pedal bag is where I throw all this stuff, a bag of felts, a bag of washers, an extra clutch, the tape, the metronome, the muffling, uh, ink pens, markers, set lists are usually folded up. So I usually stuff everything in the bass drum bag, bass drum pedal bag. You are you are prepared. Well, I've done. I, I mean, when you've got to play like right. one gig on Wednesday, one gig on Friday, and they're totally different, I know I would yeah. forget something crucial for one of those yeah. gigs. So I have to have
1: Yeah, them. and all you have to do is forget something crucial once, and it, once, and it changes everything. Yeah, and that's exactly. That's all of all of the fear that I had yesterday uh, while packing up wasn't because thinking like, oh my gosh, I'm going to. I hope I don't forget anything. All that fear was based off of I remember when I did forget something, yeah. and and it's always i mean i've never forgot i mean i guess forgetting a drum key by the way i did have one um, it was it was in <laughs> it was in my cymbal bag so in my cymbal bag the one thing i did have was i had like four pairs of brand new sticks i had uh, and i brought both pairs i brought maple and hickory depending on if i got there and it was a super loud room then i'd play with my maple sticks Uh, I had a drum key, I had a tune bot, Mm -hmm. just in case the drive really changed things, and I just couldn't get my drums to sound good. I didn't even have to use it. Um, But all of that fear is based off of forgetting something in the past, and the one thing that I've forgotten more than once is a throne. Oh, Um, yeah. That sucks. Yeah, I don't know why. And that really sucks, because you have to use like an office chair or a bar stool, and I. I know that it seems like, well, just use a chair. It's like you don't understand. A throne is a very specific thing. <laughs> and the whole night, you just feel weird. Yeah. You, you feel know? like you're playing um, a kid's kid or you're like the Jolly Green Giant or something. Either way. Yeah. yeah you're never quite comfortable. So, but yeah, luckily, remembered everything and, uh, and everything was good. Gaff tape for me is just, it's non negotiable. I have to have it because yeah. I can do so many things with it. It could be as simple as taping a set list down to the ground, or it could be as crucial as. Taping the entire drum rug to marble floors, yep. um, it uh, it could be it can be my muffling device, obviously, yep. um, and so yeah, so gaff tape is the non negotiable for me. Drum key and and TuneBot, you know, and I'm not a, a advocate of the TuneBot for. I mean, I'm not endorsed by them, but it's just one of those things where sometimes when I'm in a pinch and I can't get my drums to sound good, I like to have something that reassures me. Yeah, you know, that's that i can trust more than i can trust my ear yeah i carry so. that too because it's it's a lot of times i'm I'm going out of town and i'm
0: playing someone else's kit and they probably haven't touched it since the last time i came down to play it so i take that with me just you know but as we're setting up i just make sure all, none of the lugs have backed out too far or whatever right and i'm not sitting there like you know t- tapping and tuning for an hour i just just get the right. pitch right it takes two minutes and we're we're ready to roll
1: yeah, and sometimes there's just a lot of ambient noise where I really can't hear what the heck's going on. So, uh, the TuneBot can filter out those th- pitches. So, so a tuning device in general is is always good. So, awesome. <laughs>